I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by Chuck Marone, who is back from traveling uh, a lot, many, many millions of miles, it sounds like. So welcome back, Chuck. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks, Abby. It's nice to see you again, too. I, I have missed our uh, our times chatting every week, but now uh, no travel for a while for me, so you and I will be able to do these through the end of the year together, if you'll have me every week. So, I'll, I'll think about it. We've had some pretty good... Uh, <laughs> I know you have. We've, we've had some good guests on the show, so you've got competition now. So That's good. No, we've got some smart people around here, so I'm glad. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We've got a really interesting article today that I'm excited to talk about, specifically about the topic of short-term rentals. So there's a lot of articles on this topic right now, but I picked the one from Market Watch by Levi Sumigisi. It is entitled, Airbnb Hosts Say Bookings Fell Off a Cliff Amid Influx of New Vacation Rentals and Rising Prices. So there's been a lot of speculation on the internet this week, almost to the point of it being a meme, (laughs) about whether we are witnessing the great Airbnb bust, which is a fun way of saying that short-term rentals are a bubble that are popping before our eyes. As reported by the article, many short-term rental owners have recently voiced concerns on forums like Reddit and Twitter and Facebook about their bookings dropping significantly over the past three to four months. In some cases, hosts are saying that they were at 80% occupancy and now they're all the way down to near zero. So at this point, it's not totally clear what is happening and why this is happening. There's a little bit of consensus on, I guess, I guess you'd say the uh, supply and demand aspects of this issue. That is, you know, there being a lot of pent up travel demand that was released in mid 2021 through the beginning of 2022 that drove the demand for short term rentals. Thus, the supply of short term rentals increased. Uh, Since the pandemic began, I think there's one article that cited that the supply was up 23% year over year over the past few years. And now, fast forward to 2022, quarter three, travelers are cutting back and slashing, which is slashing the demand for short-term rentals. And another aspect of this is that apps like Airbnb and VBRO are now costing more. There's more cleaning fees and other things like that that are making them less competitive compared to hotels. So uh, there's a lot of debate about why this is happening, but you know, there there is consensus that it's happening and people are seeing a massive drop in their bookings. So I, I do feel like short-term rentals are one of those things that people love to hate. And you can definitely see, you know, on the internet right now, people are kind of gleefully cheering on this perceived demise of, of these platforms. Um, I say perceived because I, I think it's more of a market correction than a complete bust. But, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Chuck. I, I'd also like to get your thoughts, I think, before we talk about this 
boom and bust situation that we seem to be witnessing, what the strong town's perspective on short-term rentals are generally and you know, are they are they a good thing? Do we want them to bust? Do we want are they healthy for communities, you know, fiscally, socially, culturally? Is there consensus on this in strong towns? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I, I think we've debated it a lot. And and I guess I would just say there's probably not a consensus. I can give you my opinion. I recognize where they're problematic and where they're problematic, they can be very problematic. But on the other hand, I also recognize that if we were to go back 100 years to cities all over, not just North America, but all over the world, it was very common to rent a room. In fact, uh, if you look at, you know, in, in your part of the world and my part of the world, as our cities were developing in the 1800s and the early 1900s, you would have a handful of hotels and those hotels would really be for the very rich, very wealthy people that would come to town. And they, they were kind of made out that way too, right? If you, you go back and find the ones that were built of that era, they're very glitzy. They're very, they got a lot of glamour. They're very nicely done. Um, and then you would have uh, like the next tier down, which would be you rent a place over top of the bar for the night, right? Like it was a hotel slash brothel in some ways. And the next tier down was renting a room from someone. And it was very common to, you know, go to any neighborhood in the city and see people out front who would have a sign that said room for rent. And it might be a, a widow who needed money to you know, make ends meet or someone who had, a, you know, an extra room where the kid moved out or whatever that they were going to rent out. But the idea that you could show up in the evening, give someone a, a little bit of money, rent a room in the morning, they would feed you breakfast and give you a a bag of food to take on your way was a very common way of housing people in, you know, really for, for all time, but in, in, in modern American history in the last 150 years. Airbnb, in a sense, takes what zoning has outlawed or zoning has made difficult to do. Because if you want to open a, a real Airbnb, you have to go through all kinds of zoning approvals and what have you. Um, but if you want to rent out your couch or you want a couch surf or you have an extra room or you have whatever, or you have a duplex and you want to rent the other half out by the day instead of by the month, Airbnb allowed people to do that. And in that sense, I thought it was really, really positive, right? Like it's a, been a real positive influence on people's ability to get into a house, stay in a house, and make good use of a house over time. I think what's become problematic is, you know, as we have seen capital become looser, more accessible for people with a lot of money, people with a lot of money have been able to leverage very free-flowing and easy capital to buy, rent many, many, many different homes uh, in ways that have you know, clearly distorted housing markets, particularly in high demand kind of areas. Back in 2006, 2007, I knew a number of people who were house flippers, who like their thing was like, they would go out and buy a house and you can flip it. It's like easy money. And you watched people do it. And I'm like, you are an idiot. Like, how are you a house flipper? And they're like, oh, it's really easy. I know what I'm doing. And I'm like, no, no, I don't think you do. A lot of those people got shellacked 
in 2007, 2008, when the housing market started to correct. Um, I knew a, a number of them who declared bankruptcy or had huge losses that they suffered. I now today know a number of people, just like normal, regular, everyday people who own, oh, we've got an Airbnb down in Florida. We go down there three times a year, but otherwise we Airbnb it out and it's great. And we're making all kinds of money and we bought a second one. And and I do feel like there's a certain aspect of this that um, that is that. There's also a certain aspect of it that is big money, but this is kind of like the... Uh, the armchair speculators way of participating in the latest housing boom, particularly in like high areas. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, there's different levels of host, right? There's the person who, you know, is an owner occupant and they're renting out a room or a suite or an accessory dwelling. And I think it's important to make a distinction between those types of hosts and hosts that are absentee and running this thing as basically a hotel that probably ranges from the more sophisticated investor, like some kind of fund that owns a bunch of these and are running uh, kind of an Airbnb empire to like, you know, an individual uh, entrepreneur who is, is kind of has built up a portfolio of properties and hopefully didn't over leverage on on this position and kind of expect to be, be getting high revenue forever. That's kind of something that I, I wonder kind of how this will unravel if this is a bubble and, you know, people end up having to reposition how they're using these units. That may be a problem. Yeah, I, I just think this is one of those things where, you know, the technology that's been introduced to enable this kind of arrangement it, it's kind of like the bird scooter of <laughs> of housing, right? Like it's a technology that was kind of dropped in an ask for forgiveness kind of way. Cities didn't really know how to respond before, you know, it was introduced to the market. So municipalities don't even really know how to enforce rules that they maybe adopt for them. I mean, it's really difficult And you can't really put the genie back in the bottle. You can't put Pandora back in the box. People are already doing this. um, And it's made it very easy for people who may be unsophisticated investors to enter into this market. I think in this article, there was uh, somebody who was being interviewed that was saying, you know, I started doing this and I thought I was the smartest investor in the world. I was making all this money. All of a sudden, (laughs) I'm not. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's like you hit it at the right time, the right place, and you kind of think like I must be a very sophisticated investor when really it's it's kind of a an unstable investment uh, that seems like it'll just keep going up and up and up. And, um, you know, at, at the same time, I don't know if I completely am sold on the idea that this is a bubble. I think this is just a contraction that's pretty natural and will even itself out. At the same time, I, I think that this, you know, neighborhoods that are best kind of suited for short-term rentals, neighborhoods like the one that I live in where there's kind of an over-concentration of these rentals and people are actually getting kicked out of their homes so that, that you know, to be replaced by short-term rental units – I, I don't think that that's going away anytime soon unless there's a serious contraction in travel demand. 
Well, let, let, let's look at that for a sec, because I, I feel like there's two sides to the, this current shakeout. And one is a supply side, but the other one is the demand side. And I, I think they're both very interesting. The, the demand side, I travel a lot. So I experienced this uh, from, from the side of a traveler. It's very interesting because in March of 2020, uh, before the lockdowns, before all that, my family and I took a vacation to Florida. And when, you know, we're from Minnesota, March in Florida is delightful because it is like 80 degrees warmer than where we're at. Uh, we went and I remember I was kind of, we were kind of late in deciding when to go and we were late in booking things. I got a three room condo for $50 a night. And I did because there was, everything was vacant, like everything. And we would show up and it was in this big resort and there was nobody there. Like there was just nothing. And this was the first week of March. So it wasn't kind of when we got to the whole meltdown thing. You look at that and it was very clear that if you had a strategy going into the pandemic, um, in the very early days, you were kind of freaked out uh, owning an Airbnb, like I'm, I'm screwed. And then all of a sudden it went the other way because people said, I don't want to be in the city anymore. I'm going to go live in the countryside. I'm going to get an Airbnb for a week or a month or what have you. And there was a, you know, you saw the prices rebound again. Um, then they kind of settled back down and then you had this huge kind of outpouring of demand from pent up from vacationers. We're going to go on vacation and just looking at supply or I'm demand, I'm sorry, not looking at the supply yet and how the market responded to that, but just looking at the demand, uh, again, you had this like overwhelming peak of demand that now has because that travel season is over but also because of inflationary pressures and what have you, has started to shift people's spending habits away from uh, vacations, away from these type of experiences. And you're starting to see that demand fade away. I think in a market that, if we can talk about supply next, is oversaturated from a supply standpoint, demand that is much less than supply or even like slightly less than supply will make the prices drop incredibly. In other words, there's a lot of downward room for prices to fall uh, once there's not enough people to, to get into places. If you have 10 units and you have 11 people that want them, there's going to be price competitiveness. If you have 10 units and there's eight people that want them, there's going to be a lot of pickiness in the market and prices will come down really fast. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. Well, so let's think about this as a correction, though, because I, I think that, you know, we could say that prices will just simply come down. But if there are people who have borrowed money against these properties, say they, you know, bought an old house, an old duplex or an old sixplex, and they said, I'm going to turn these all into Airbnbs and I'm going to put a lot of money into it because I'm going to get more revenue from this property than you know I would get if I was renting it out to long-term renters. I mean, there are people who have, I think, over-leveraged on these projects. And so, you know, while you know, the, the idea is that they would lower the prices. And I think, you know, the lower prices will be the more competitive units. I think that there's a possibility that supply may go down as people pivot. And as these, you know, these units may, 
may turn over to become long-term renter rentals or, you know, have other uses, or maybe they become fully furnished long-term rentals. Uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm curious about is what does that do to supply as the actual hosts that are experiencing this make decisions based on the nuances of their investment, right? Like there, there may be some people who overextended that may need to pivot. There may be people who, turn these over and and use these spaces for different reasons. Does that make sense? No. And and I think that that is true. And I think that in any marketplace, you you would see that kind of thing happening, right? Um, The problem is, is that housing is not like any other marketplace because you're talking about a product that a house that should be rather inelastic in the sense that like everybody needs a house, everybody needs a place to stay. And clearly we've had this long stretch where we've not been building enough to take what we have been building and convert them into short-term rentals has further like shifted that market. And I think it's an open question about how far the other way it can go. Like I said, if you have 10 rentals available as short-term rentals and you only have eight people that want them, there's a lot of room for the price to go down. But I think the weak players in that have to get out then. And you go very quickly to having eight or seven rentals available instead of 10, right? I don't think it would necessarily take much to stabilize the market again from that standpoint. The interesting thing, and I I feel like this is the supply story, is that housing has become such a financialized product now that what we see is a level of volatility in the housing market that mirrors the stock market. We think of housing as being the stable investment that people make to pay off over time. You invest in a house, you secure a mortgage, you pay that mortgage off. At the same time, you have ongoing maintenance costs for that house. Um, you're actually not making money per se. You're kind of losing money, but you have a place to stay. So in a sense, you're paying rent to yourself. There, there's some ways you build equity in doing this that you know make sense over a person's lifetime. Once we convert housing into a financial product, now what you see is that that aspect of living in a place becomes this thing that generates for you equity that you can cash out, that you can use. That in itself makes you bid higher for homes, which brings up housing prices. You also see where the short-term rentals and the other aspects of homeownership, not to mention the hedge funds buying houses and, and the all cash sales and all that, start to make the sharp edge of the market function more like a stock than this stable kind of bond-like investment. And so what happens is you start to see this volatility in prices. Prices can shift 5%, 10% in a very short period of time, can, can shift 20% within a year, 30% within a year. You can't run a housing market for people like you and me. You can't run a housing market for non-investment people where the marginal buyer, the person actually setting the price, has 5, 10, 20% price shifts that they're dealing with. And so it creates all this instability in the market. And when you get people like this one person I know who, who just bought, you know, who bought in the last couple of years a couple of places in Florida that they're Airbnb, I actually think they are screwed. Like I I don't, I mean, I don't know their personal financial situation, but you're going to be taking on a lot of loss and trying to get out of that thing with as much remaining as you can at some point. And that's, that's just a result of financialization 
let me create these two scenarios. Scenario number one, a widow or a widower has a spare bedroom and needs the money to make ends meet and stay in their house. I feel like in that situation, we're all like, yeah, Airbnb, like, great. Like, let's stabilize the neighborhood. That transaction actually tends to stabilize the value in the neighborhood, which is good for everybody. Let's take scenario number two. The person I know from up the street uh, has access to capital that regular people can't because they have a little bit of money. They use that capital to buy a vacation home in Florida and then put it on Airbnb for 48 of the 52 weeks a year and use that money to, you know, what have you. Um, that person is a speculator, right? Like that person is distorting the market in weird ways um, that wouldn't be available if that capital wasn't so cheap and readily accessible. And having that capital now become more expensive through interest rates, while at the same time demand for that product goes down, I think that type of person is the frothy one that's going to get knocked out of the market. It just the question is how much damage do they do on the way down? Yeah. And, you know, does it ultimately end up being a good thing or a bad thing for people who actually live in neighborhoods? Because at the end of the day, I mean, it is concerning that housing has become such a commodity that now, you know, we're turning neighborhoods into hotels. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> I would say that's probably not a good thing for no, neighborhoods broadly. Right. Yeah. It's very bizarre. And as somebody who lives in a neighborhood that is, you know, kind of the cool neighborhood where people want to, you know, visit the city and they want to stay in a neighborhood like this because of the destinations, the unique, unique vibe. You're starting to see a lot of, you know, existing older housing stock that is moderately priced for, you know, homeowners or renters get turned over to investment properties. And, you know, there's one listing in my neighborhood that you know, literally the title was party house and it became a, a yeah. huge party house. Yeah. Yeah. It became a huge problem. Um, and I will say that, you know, I'm not totally against short-term rentals, but th these things happen, especially when, you know, they're being managed by people who are speculative owners. They're trying to pull as much revenue out of these properties as possible. It's not necessarily about, you know, creating a home for somebody or like ethically running a property. That is problematic in, in a housing, you know, housing crisis. We're all talking about this housing crisis. We're short all these units. By the way, you know, there's studies that say there are 2.5 million Airbnbs. <laughs> um, so you've got to wonder what that actually does to the housing supply dynamics at the same time, you know, in again, you can't necessarily put the genie back in the bottle. So this is one of those things where you it's like in a functioning market, if there is a demand for both residents and visitors to be located in a neighborhood, why are we not just building a lot more housing? Why can't the market respond to this demand? I mean, is that, I mean, obviously we know there's a lot of reasons why it's very difficult to actually get anything built in this country, but it, it seems like, you know, the, the higher revenue points from, you know, Airbnb and other short-term rental apps would lend themselves really well to helping to fund very expensive new construction and actually leave the older construction to long-term residents. 
Yeah, but this is where I, I think you're right. But I also think that this is where our broken financial system is actually creating the wrong signals to investors. We've talked in the past about how having 0% interest rates is like removing gravity from the system. It just makes things grow in weird ways. And you get these financial tumors, you get these financial like weird growth that, that don't make any sense, but there's no corrective mechanism. You're starting to see gravity come back into play now with interest rates like slowly climbing up, which means the cost of money actually you know, is starting to manifest again. If, if there's no cost of money there's really not much at risk for doing crazy, insane things with capital. Yeah. And if you can there's access There's no skin capital, in the game. There's no skin in the yeah. game. And now all of a sudden, with, with capital starting to cost more, there, there is. And so the difficulty that we're working through, I think, across the whole housing sector is not only the fact that zoning is messed up and the, the way that we build homes is messed up and that we should be building a lot of homes uh, when we're not, but we've also turned the housing stock that we have into an investment device akin to a stock uh, or closer to a stock than it's ever been. And so the people buying and transacting in them, the marginal buyer, again, the, the buyer that outbids everybody else, is looking at that bid as an investment, not as a home. And looking at the bid as an investment, you have different uh, functions than, than you otherwise would. We, we rent as an organization an Airbnb every year in Florida. Next month, we have a staff retreat. There's going to be 18 of us staying in two Airbnbs next to each other in, uh, in Florida. We rent two, like eight, nine bedroom places. And uh, it's a really good way to do a staff retreat for a fully remote company. We all go there and, and hang out. They are cheap buildings. They are built, in a sense, for the Airbnb market. They're, they're basically next to Disney World, and so they're built for a tourist market. The, the buildings themselves are probably financed over 30 years, but without intense maintenance, they're not going to last 15. I mean, they're, they're basically being junked because they're, they're hotels. I mean, that's what they're designed to be. And you look at that and recognize that that is a business model that probably makes a ton of sense for the people who bought into it. So long as they can keep the occupancy up, as soon as the occupancy goes away, it's a horrible business model. And all those properties would be dumped if it happened for any extended period of time. Being next to Disney World is one way to insure rentals. Being in Kansas City or Brainerd, Minnesota or wherever else, um, you know, as nice as these places might be, uh, those to me are a lot frothier and a lot more subject to the, the downward trend. And, and I think the big question here about, you know, the Airbnb correction, okay, is what of the rest of the market will it drag down? Because if it's just the, the Airbnb speculators that lose money, okay, fine. But that's never what it is, right? It's like how much of the rest of this is it going to going to drag down? Yeah, it'll be really unfortunate if the entire American economy is like, like that's the one card that falls is the Airbnb market. And it just, <laughs> well, we're, we're this, just being hoisted up by Airbnb. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of silly, but you know, yeah. we're in this situation where it comes to housing, where prices need to come down because they're unaffordable, Yeah, but prices can't come down because so much of our 
wealth as a nation is tied up in home prices from everywhere from cities' budgets to personal uh, retirement plans are tied up in the wealth of homes. And so home prices can't come down, but they also have to well, come down. Yeah. And, and we've borrowed money against you know these supposed high values that I don't know. Over, I, I've been a homeowner for a couple of years now, and it it's like the amount that the increase in that my current home has apparently gone up in value seems completely fake. Like it just doesn't make any sense. And the fact that we have this whole housing economy that you know spikes in these ways that are really irrational. I, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that we're leveraging against something like that and in the way that we are, because it does feel like a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. But, but my house has doubled in on Zillow in the last six years since I bought it. And the interesting thing is I got my tax appraisal from this, from the County and they have it valued at near that as well. And so let's say that there's actually a correction and it goes back to what I think it should normally be, which is a, a substantially less than that. Um, my community is planning on this much tax from me and they're actually going to wind up getting this much tax in a year or two when things straighten out. And how do you, how do you make that work? You make that work by like dramatically raising tax rates in a recession, in a downturn, in an area of high unemployment, in this. So what do you do? You cut government services in a government that has massive amounts of backlogs of everything and is struggling to maintain everything that they have. It, how do you cut from that? So, you know, to me, there will be um, something at some point that pricks a bubble. Maybe it's this. I don't know. Uh, but the housing market is very unstable right now because it it's not it is not responding to reality as people experience it on the ground. Yeah, it's scary. It's a scary thing to think about, and and scary that it could be Airbnb that takes this whole thing down. Well, if it is, <laughs> um, let's there'll be a window where we can get really cheap Airbnbs. So maybe we should go and. Take a European vacation or something. Yeah, right. Save your pennies. <laughs> um, okay, so let's leave it there. Um, but before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been reading or watching or listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. So, Chuck, I'll throw it to you. What have you been up to? Well, Stella, my youngest one, um, was assigned for school of mice and men by John Steinbeck. And Oh yeah. 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 I love I love Steinbeck. I love his writing. I mean, I've said many times if he wrote the phone book, it would be the most beautiful <laughs> phone book ever. Right. Like I just I really um admire his writing. And so yeah. I joined her in reading this and, you know, she she didn't like it, but she She's a very smart kid, but she likes, she's like, dad, I like happy stories. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. a man is not a happy story. It's been good. I enjoy having uh, daughters who are of an age now where they're reading intelligent stuff and then can have thoughtful conversations about it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's actually pretty exciting. You have like a reading buddy and you guys can start a yeah. your own house book club. 
So yeah, well, she tends to. I mean, obviously, they both tend to have different tastes than dad, um, <laughs> and uh, you know all that. But it's it's fun when there is overlap. I mean, I read uh, what's Eli Weasel book that she read a couple of years ago, and Chloe read the. Um, Something wicked this way comes. We read that together. So there's there's just things that they've gotten into, and it's fun. Last week I got Stella went with me on my last trip, so I went to Jacksonville and gave a talk, and then she had a few days off from school, and so she came with, and we went to we went to Disney World together for a couple of days, and so just the two of us, you know, when they when you have two daughters, you don't get to spend extended amount of times very often with just one of them. So to be able to spend really three and a half days uh, with just one of them as my companion was a priceless ton of fun. So, yeah. That's awesome. Well, that's a lot of fun. I remember when I was uh, probably your daughter's age is my father actually travels a lot for work and I used to love going on work trips, you know, wherever it was. And, you know, going to Florida and other places like that, Chicago, and getting to spend a few days seeing a cool place. So, yeah, that's great. So I guess what I wanted to share this week was that um, I've actually been starting a puzzle. So every winter I usually go out and get like a thousand piece puzzle And I've actually started one that I already have and have been starting to work on it. And I've been doing some research on actually making custom puzzles using like your photography or I I have a cousin who has really beautiful photography that I actually want to create a puzzle out of. So I've been spending some time this week basically researching that if you have any recommendations for puzzle companies, I'm not sure if that's your thing. Um, please let me know. I, I'm in the market for a new puzzle and I want to get something really interesting and cool because basically between now and the end of winter, I like to have a, at least one you know, large puzzle that I will continuously work on through the winter. So I'm in the market. <laughs> is, this like, is this like meditation time? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it's just something to do. I'm, I'm not really good at like sitting around and, and not doing anything. That's why I listen to audiobooks because I, I like to keep myself moving. So yeah, I, I guess it is kind of a form of meditation. I really like working on puzzles and it's something that, that I will work on for maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you know, I'll, I'll do it in small increments, uh, just, you know, after work. Uh, as I'm doing other things sometimes. So we, we have, I have a couple of family members who are into puzzles and they will like, yeah, get the huge ones. And there's been yeah. a couple of disappointments where there's like one piece missing at the end, that kind of thing. Yep. But, yeah. yeah. Yep. That's yeah. happened to me. And it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking when there's I've watched one that piece. Heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're on the last piece and it's always somewhere, you know, in the middle of the puzzle and, you're right. you're like where is it? <laughs> uh-huh. And you you're looking under everything and it's like a frantic situation. So Yeah. But you're right, it's never been my it's never been my thing and uh I don't know. It's not that I don't mind it. I like doing it with friends as like a social thing sometimes. But uh yeah, mm, I read books. 
I mean, that's what I said. Yeah. Like, um, I actually have like four books going on right now. And I'm like, oh yeah, last night, cause I've been gone. I was gone for 10 days in a row. And when I got back, um, it's like, I found this old friend again. And it was this book that I'm like a third of the way through and was really enjoying, but didn't bring on my trip. Cause I brought my Kindle on my trip, which has like way too many books in it. And I found this book and I'm like, oh, I've missed you old friend. Like, let's sit down and get to know each other again. So that's my, if I got 15 minutes here or there, that's what I end up doing. You know, what's interesting is that I have the same feeling as I've been working on this puzzle that I already did. Like I remember specific pieces and, you know, how they connect with other pieces. That's kind of interesting that you say that because I, it's like almost like a photographic memory. I, I don't have a photographic memory, but there's things that you just really clearly remember uh, how certain pieces match together and, and working on one particular piece. And so I actually have pieces that I like remember being frustrated by or remember uh, where they go uh, without looking at the picture. So yeah, I, I love puzzles. I want a new one because I, working on one you've already done is not as fun. I don't think is getting a new one. So, well, I will keep my eyes open for you. Is I, I I've been I, when I look at them, I'm like, okay, they, you get these ones with all these colors and all this depth, and I'm like, okay, well, that looks hard. But then the hardest ones look to me the ones with like not a lot of like very simple ones, right? Like where the color gradations don't change as much. Yeah, I I don't really like that. I would rather do one that has enough going on that you can start to like make logical matches and uh, organize okay. the pieces. Maybe, you know, I feel like it's my OCD tendencies and that's why I like working on puzzles. I like to organize all these pieces and start putting it together. So, okay. I yeah. will find you a good puzzle. Yeah. Find me one, please. That would be great. <laughs> okay. Thanks, well, uh, we'll end it there. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care.